welcome everybody to the Total Soccer Show, a late night Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. I am here to talk about the USA's 4-0 victory over Costa Rica in a friendly. Uh, to do so with me, I've got a man who prefers when the U.S. wins 4-0 over any sort of tight 1-0 affairs because 4-0 is always more fun. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. Taylor, you're spot on there. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I and the rest of the, the world prefers 4-0 wins over 1-0 wins. Um, and, and that's good because that's exactly what we saw tonight. It was, man. Uh, I, I, I thought this could be a pretty big win. I also thought it could be a loss. And I kind of thought I wouldn't care either way because I was so hyped coming off of that win over Mexico. And it felt like things were, were positive for the United States that even if this didn't go well, I was willing to write it off as, yeah, it's just a friendly, we were trying some different personnel, whatever. And I think we should still not be too over at the top about, about this result. But that said, a 4-0 win over uh, Costa Rica, who I think, as John Champion put it at the end, the U.S. has defeated its three primary CONCACAF rivals in the span of a week. That is no small feat, Joe. Uh, how are you feeling about this U.S. team right now? I feel good. It's a nice bow on top of this this window, right? We get the Switzerland game up at altitude to prepare this group for the Nations League being played in Denver. And then it, it's not necessarily the prettiest game against Honduras, but they, yeah. the U.S. do create some chances in the opening stages, and then they're able to get that result. And then the Mexico game was incredible in the Mexico game. <laughs> and, and now we're here, and the U.S. finish it off. They got the job done. Because Taylor, I'm with you. I would have been okay with a little bit more of a lackluster performance, but you really don't want that. Not not if this is supposed to signify World Cup qualifying. Not just because you're playing three CONCACAF teams, but because of the cadence of these games and how U.S. soccer scheduled them to reflect what we're going to see starting in the fall later this year. So I, I think it's a good win against a, a weak Costa Rica team. Granted, yeah. Costa Rica not, not full strength by any stretch. They rotated seven players out of the lineup from the the Nations League. They used the same starting 11 against uh, Mexico where they, they drew nil-nil and then lost in penalties. And then again against Honduras in that third place game. So, it, it, I mean, it was a not the best team we've seen from Costa Rica, but a, a great result. That, and the U.S. played well to get that result. Yeah, and I think the old cliche would be you can only beat the opponent that's in front of you. To beat them 4-0 is pretty pretty strong. And I would say that even if a U.S. like C-plus team lost to a Costa Rica B-plus team 4-0, we would be very upset. Yeah. Like 4-0 is a big result. I think Felipe was tweeting out that like uh, Costa Rican press were already having some thoughts on the manager and whether or not he should stick around. So I think it is a weakened opponent, but still for the United States to look as – I would say comprehensively dominant is a rarity. There's usually those moments when the U.S. looks really good. Then there will be a 15 to 20 minute period when the opponent comes back and, and gets a kind of a foothold and gets some confidence and gets a shot. The U.S. gets nervous. Uh, I, I did not do as close of a rewatch. I will say I definitely paid attention to the first viewing. And there really, there were some moments for Costa Rica where they would get half chances or slight counterattacking opportunities. But for the most part, I felt like the U.S. controlled the game, dictated the tempo, dictated the pace at, at times. Really, the only thing they weren't in control of was the fouling. And I think a lot of that was because Costa Rica had to do a lot more of it than the U.S. did. Yeah, the U.S. looked comprehensive. I, I think the way you described it, Taylor, is really good. They they had control of the ball, which for, for games like this, for Greg Berhalter, is really important. We saw the U.S. sacrifice possession against Mexico, de deliberately changing up their defensive structure to 
to settle into more of a mid-block 4-4-2, which is the mid-block shape that Greg Berhalter prefers, as opposed to that 4-3-3 high press. That 4-4-2 went out the window, just like I think we all knew it would, headed into this game against a non-Mexico kind of team. So the U.S. had 73% possession in the first half. They had three shots on target. Costa Rica had then 27% possession. Yeah, look at that math, folks. And and zero shots Hmm. on target. So you can see even then, and the stats evened out a little bit in the second half, where the U.S. sat back a little bit deeper, which is a natural thing when you're up by multiple goals in a friendly, and then you go up by a third goal in the 52nd minute. I mean, it it had a natural sort of flow to the game in the second half where the U.S. didn't need to be as dominant on the ball. But yeah, overall, there's for me at least, there are some things that I, I will nitpick and I did nitpick, and we can talk about some of that stuff later. But by and large, this was a good performance. The U.S. got the job done and looked good while they did it. And we should note, looked good while they did it with a lot of their key players on the bench. They did have Tyler yep. Adams to start, which was a very welcome sight, but we did not have Weston McKinney in the lineup. There was no Christian Pulisic to start. There was no Gio Reyna to start. He comes on later on. Uh, there was no John Brooks, no Zach Steffen, no Serginho Dest. So the United States, like, and that's just naming the ones off the top of my head. I'm sure there were more in there. So the U.S. also not playing its strongest possible team. It's not like we are just kind of brought out the, the stars against Mexico and they did it again. The sort of understudies came into this game and I think knew their situation, knew this was an opportunity. And uh, like more so than normal, I think my list of positive players is is pretty long, if not the entire starting 11, basically, because I think most players in that starting 11, most players on the field for the United States tonight looked good, looked sharp, looked strong, and maybe gave Greg Berhalter something to think about. I'm with you. Nine different starters in this game. Uh, we, we see Horvath and goal, and then the only two starters that carried over were McKenzie and Ream from mm-hmm. the Mexico game. So it is so many different guys, and it's encouraging to see the talent. I'm always reminded when we get to see the the non-Christian Pulisics of the world play, I, I'm still so excited because it's Brendan Aronson and Timothy Weah instead of Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna. That, that it's Yunus Musa getting a look finally in midfield. It is this whole other crop of talent that's maybe slightly behind some of the other guys that we saw against Mexico and against Honduras, but not far behind. We see Tim Weah coming out and and clowning people. We see Brendan Aronson clowning Costa Rica at the end of that first half, driving in in, into the box, Mm -hmm. dribbling, and then cutting the ball back, and and Daryl DK can't quite finish it, and then Yunus Musa can't quite finish it. But there is so much talent here. And, and the talent deficit was very visible in this game, and that's exactly where the U.S. wants to be and, and, frankly, should be. How much of it, Joe, do you put down to the talent deficit, and maybe these are the same thing, versus the U.S. game plan being very strong? Because I felt like we saw the U.S. not get sort of overwhelmed, not be consistently under threat from one player or one side of the pitch or anything like that. I felt like what we saw was the U.S. be very smart in what they were trying to do, both on and off the ball. And especially defensively, I saw them... like. Having a couple different looks, the one that I saw most regularly, especially later on in the first half, was almost a 4-2-4 when either Musa or the Jet, usually it'd be Musa, would step uh, step into that front line to really limit the way Costa Rica wanted to build out. And then you had a kind of tight two in the middle that made it difficult for them to play through if they did bypass that front four. And then there was just a, a, a good amount of the exact type of pressing that Jurgen Klopp wants, that uh, Thomas Tuchel would want. It's it's the pressing without over-pursuing. And the U.S. was very good about that sort of pop-out 1v1 defending. And if people are confused by that one, it's that, like, it's the best way I can explain it is that type of thing where maybe a Costa Rica player gets the ball, 
30 yards from the U.S. goal and doesn't really have anybody around him. And so let's say it's Yunus Musa is 10 yards away. Yunus Musa pops out, covers maybe five to seven of those yards, but isn't trying to apply direct pressure, is just trying to let the player know, hey, I'm here, but everybody else is marked up. The U.S. are doing all their defensive assignments well, such that that little amount of pressure, that little step, usually made Costa Rica panic and just sort of go for an ill-advised ball in that came to nothing, or they would reset possession because they didn't have any other options. And so the way the U.S. set up well defensively, but then adjusted and stepped individually as they needed to, I thought caused Costa Rica a ton of problems and simultaneously put the U.S. in strong positions to counterattack. It did. The U.S. defensive was the U.S.'s defensive setup was solid, and, and I think their possession setup was really solid as well. In the first half, we saw Mark McKenzie and Tim Ream split a little bit wider as those two center backs. Reggie Cannon stayed home more on that right side, and Anthony Robinson pushed forward on the left side. And to fill Robinson's spot, Sebastian Legette often dropped into that left back hole. And so you had this rotated shape, but still an identifiable 4-3-3, where Tim Weah was providing width on the right, Robinson on the left, and then it was almost Musa and Aronson as the eights, with Adams as the six, and then Legette in that left back spot. So it, it was a, and I don't want to use the word strange, it was just a rotated look that also was very logical at the same time, and effective in breaking Costa Rica down. And that, for me, I, I don't want to come off as negative, but I think Costa Rica were, were really poor. I don't want to come off as negative about the United States, I should say. Mm-hmm. I, th- I thought Costa Rica's tactical setup in the first half was was very poor. You could see that they changed from their usual setup against against Mexico and against Honduras in Nations League. They'd used a 4-4-2, and it was Brian Ruiz and Joel Campbell up top. It had a bank of four behind them and another bank of four behind them. In the first half, Costa Rica changed all that. They went to a three-at-the-back shape that looked like a 5-2-1-2 defensively, or other times it looked like a 5-4-1 or a 5-2-3. It was very fluid in trying to apply pressure on the United States' three central midfielders. But all that really resulted in was them getting pulled apart over and over again. Not not as the the U.S. weren't – they weren't creating dozens and dozens of chances, but there were big gaps in Costa Rica's defensive shape at the top, in the back. It was not a good look from them. It was not a structured look. And the change to the 4-4-2 in the second half was very needed. It just came two goals too late in my mind. Yeah, I'm with you because I think we've seen this from the United States in the past where they're trying to do sort of what we've been doing, but also add in some new wrinkles, adjust a little bit based on what they think the opponent is going to do. And I ended up, usually I sort of have what I think is going to be the starting 11 versus what I think is going to be the starting 11 from a formation tactic standpoint. That's that's what I write down, and then I adjust it as the game goes on. I wrote Costa Rica's formation down three different times because hmm. they really did seem to be, as you said – pretty fluid in what they were doing and for chunks of the first half they were almost in a 4-2-3-1 that then became a back five when they needed yeah. to, to do that and and so I think all that is to say that this does feel like a things can be two things sort of moment where it's Costa Rica I think did not get their game plan right but also the United States did and played very well to really heighten those issues, heighten those differences in what they were doing versus what Costa Rica wanted to do. And I will say, jumping into maybe some of the individual performers, the player that I most want to talk about is Tyler Adams, because I think he is a huge reason why the United States looked so good in this game, because he doesn't slow down. He keeps that ball moving. And because he keeps the ball moving and he keeps that tempo up and demands that the tempo stay that high, I saw him doing that a lot. 
people don't slack off and the ball keeps moving and it zips into feet and then it zips out of feet and you keep the ball moving and Costa Rica, who maybe expected a little bit more of a static approach or a slower build-up approach from the U.S., I think were constantly caught off by that. You could tell the difference in intensity from this game to the Mexico game and even to the Honduras game, right? This this game was very much a friendly, just like the Switzerland game was a friendly. And it had a different feel to it. And and Adams, I bet if we'd seen him for longer against Mexico, because we did see him at the end of that game, I I think there was a difference even in his play in in terms of his intensity and his speed of play in this game to, to the actual meaningful Nations League games. But the difference was not nearly as stark. The contrast wasn't nearly as stark as it was for some of the subs that came on or, or for the center backs. I mean, Adams still brings this level of intensity, especially on the defensive side, that is just unmatched in this pool. He has the ability to cover ground, to close down angles well, to, to cover and shift in front of his center backs, to screen them and shield them, and then also run out and, and be this wild presser. He, he forces a, 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 a long touch from Torres, I'll, I'll put it that way, on Aronson's goal. And that, that touch from Torres, Adams, Adams steps to him, and then that cues the whole goal. And then later on Cannon's goal, Adams yep. does multiple pieces of defensive work that yep. then force a loose ball, force an errant pass, and then Reggie Cannon gets the ball and scores. So it, it, that's two moments, and there were many more in this game, but those two showed up in the box score of Adams going and doing his thing, and the U.S. has been missing that thing for quite some time. I didn't note him on the Aronson goal. For the third goal, the Cannon goal, I absolutely did because it's just, it's a play that, like, again, not trying to be over the top, but the best comparison I can draw is like, that is a play that Pep Guardiola would applaud because it's oh, of course. step and make a play before the, the opponent can counterattack or transition and catch you sort of like spread out. And, and at the same time, like make that play without having to foul, without having to get that card. But instead, he steps, doesn't get beaten, forces a loose ball, forces Costa Rica into a bit of a panic. And I think it's Venegas loses the ball. It's Tejada picks it up. But then, as you've already said, Adams applies that secondary pressure to Tejada and he doesn't want to get caught in possession. So he just goes for a rushed pass. And it is, it is absolutely a credit to Reggie Cannon, who obviously picks up this ball, cuts on Gonzalez. It's a great cut. It's a great finish, but. Even as impressive as those two things to me was that as soon as as Venegas is dispossessed and the ball goes back to Tejada, Cannon knows. Cannon knows this ball is coming. And if you watch, as soon as it goes backwards, he changes from dropping back into that right back spot to stepping aggressively. And that's why he basically takes that ball in stride. It's not reacting as the ball is passed. It's basically anticipating what's going to happen because of that pressure from Tyler Adams, latches onto the ball, and then scores the goal. But it is Tyler Adams, as you said, Joe, covering and and sort of closing down, but then also wildly pressing, but without it being that wild. He's never out of control. I I thought that aspect of his game was so strong. I want to talk more about him, but I don't want to go on for like five minutes. So I'll turn it back (laughs) to you, Joe. I mean, he just does the things that this midfield needs, and I guess he does things that fit with the players around him. In this game especially, I'm looking at Yunus Musa. When Adams is is the six, he doesn't have a ton of quality to build out. I don't think that's that's a, a hot take. I think that's been proven with his time in Europe, his time with the Red Bulls, and, and with the national team. He's not here to, to build and be a Pirlo-type regista. That's not his game. But when he's in a midfield with Yunus Musa specifically, Musa can cover 
for some of what Adams lacks. And I think they work so well together. Yeah, it's a midfield three with Legette in there too. Legette can do some of this. But Musa is so press resistant. Musa's mm-hmm. best attribute, I think, is his ability to receive the ball, have a man on his back, and still turn and break lines with his dribbling. Baralter used that phrase in, in his post-match press conference, break lines with his dribbling, talking about Yunus Musa. And I think they fit so well together because Adams then doesn't have to do all of that press-resistant kind of work. Adams can vacate space a little bit. In this game, he would then pull a marker out of midfield for Musa to drop into that sixth spot. And then Musa could progress the ball. And, and sometimes the rotation wouldn't be quite that simple. But the idea is there. And I think Adams is now at the point, or, or the U.S. pool is now at the point where Adams can be complemented in certain instances, and, and the U.S. can still play out of the back without losing too much for having him at the six. Yeah, because I think you're right that if you have Musa there to partner him, and Musa does have the ability to play on the turn, to go on a dribble, but also to, to pass the ball well as well, uh, you do have to kind of factor him into what you're doing uh, from a defensive standpoint if you're Costa Rica, whoever the opponent might be. And then there's just Tyler Adams' ability to turn it to 11 when he needs to. The the <laughs> one that I would encourage people if they DVR'd it, maybe I'll try to like record this at some point and post it, uh, is in uh, 16-22. So in the 17th minute, 16 minutes and 22 seconds into the game, it, it's two two things that I think are so important to what Tyler Adams brings to this team. It's the U.S. in, I would say, slow possession around midfield. And... Adams is on and off the ball. He's receiving it. He's taking a touch. He's playing it back. He's receiving it. He's playing it wide. He's getting it back. He's playing it back. But it's all fast. And when it does start to slow down, and there are moments in this sequence when it kind of does, you can see him demanding the ball back or demand that it be picked up. And it's not that like hands in the air frustration. It's not demoralizing. It's just the kind of it's almost the, what you'd expect from a manager of like, hey, got to be faster, got to be faster. Let's pick it up. Let's pick it up. And because of that, I think you don't get lulled in. The U.S. doesn't kind of find themselves, all right, we'll, we'll go back to Ethan Horvath or we'll just ping it long and diagonal. It was interesting to me that I only saw one or two of those, at least in the first half, a few more in the second half as the game got more leggy. But all of that is to say that then the reason why I draw attention to this exact sequence is because Adams is moving it quickly, one and two touch passing. And then at one point, he receives the ball with his back to the Costa Rica goal, and there's a very obvious outlet pass to Reggie Cannon, or he could just play it back to one of the center backs, as he's been doing. And three different Costa Rica players all assume they know what he's going to do, and they all step about three yards out. They all anticipate that backwards pass and think maybe this is the pressing trigger. And in that moment, Adams turns and plays the ball forward, and it's a flick from Tim Weah, and then there's a counterattack on. And that's why that tempo is so important to me, is because he keeps it moving, but everybody's alive and working and energetic. And so it's not a like, oh, and now the play's on, and now we make those runs. It seemed as though he waited for the exact moment to turn evade those defenders and play in a ball that then all of the rest of the team was ready for and attacked swiftly off of. And just that sort of difference from keep the ball moving, keep the ball moving to open up the entire defense is not a thing I think other uh, potential number six options for the U.S. can do. Taylor, I'm going to lay down a hot take because my first Adams hot take wasn't hot enough. Please, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Tyler Adams is very good and I like watching him play soccer. <laughs> Boom. Sizzling right yep. there sizzling he but i'm with you and not just for the obvious (laughs) reason but because like i was about to say like he might be one of my favorites and i think he is for the u.s because it's just he's just so clean on the ball he's so confident on the ball but then as you've already pointed out joe the closing down when he probably was expecting to be subbed out like at the end of the first half i just he's just he really is 
just fun to watch. And contrasting that with like Pulisic, who's going to go on runs, or Reyna, or Aronson, or even Musa, he can do that, but he's not going to do that. But that he is still just as exciting is uh, pretty telling, I think. Yeah, and, and again, I just am. I'm constantly drawn back to yes, Adams is a first choice guy, probably the only first choice guy starting in this group, maybe Yunus Musa as well, but we don't really know right now what that first choice midfield looks like in terms of the number eight spots. But setting Adams even aside for a minute, just the talent that was on display here with Adams as that six and, and Musa next to him on his right and Leggett on the left, the front three. Man, when I saw this lineup and, and you look at that front three, it's Daryl DK who wasn't on the Nations League roster, so it's our first chance outside of the Switzerland game to get a look at him. And then you see Tim Weah and Aronson to his right and to his left. It, it's just... A group that was so fun to watch, and Adams, of course, is a big part of that, controlling things and and breaking things defensively for the U.S. in midfield. Yeah, Let, let's talk. We're, let's talk about some individuals in a little bit. Let's talk about those goals for a minute. I feel like we've talked about yeah. the third one, but the first two I also want to spotlight because both goals I would say uh, are a credit to Mark McKenzie as well, and for a player who was not good in possession against Mexico, got caught a few different times, obviously gives the ball away for the first goal. Like, I think it was important that Greg Berhalter started him in this game. I think there's a reason why he did that, and it's because he wanted to give him a little bit more confidence, a little bit more familiarity with the team. And obviously, he suffered the racial abuse on social media this week. So I think also putting him out there to sort of show that he wasn't affected by it, that he could just come out and and do his job and do it very well, that was big. But then for him to back it up with a comprehensive performance, also very big. And he did his defensive job, but for both the first and second goals, it's it's smart passes. The second one more so than the first, but both sequences start with good passes from McKenzie, the second one to DK, the first one to Sebastian Legette, but it's bypassing Costa Rican players for the first one. I think he takes out three or four players with one pass, plays Legette in space, he turns, he plays in Anthony Robinson, and away we go. And like that, just the the way that as soon as Costa Rica were opened up and there was one U.S. player in space that everybody was then moving and kind of recognized that the opportunity was there to go. And then they did. And then they scored. I'm not used to that level of connectivity and consistency from the U.S. It was very, very fun, not just for that first goal, but for all the goals. And and for that first goal, I have it in my notes Costa Rica made things too easy for the U.S., but the U.S. also made it look easy. This is a things-can-be-two-things situation where there are these gaps in Costa Rica's defensive block. But yeah, I mean, Taylor, you're spot on with the nice ball in from McKenzie. And then it's a nice ball from Legette and a well-timed run from Anthony Robinson to kind of start wide and then bend inside and then play a nice ball on the floor, bending again into DK, who, who can't get that shot off on goal. It's blocked by Francisco Calvo. But Aronson then cleaning the ball up, as I feel like he he does very well, making those vertical runs and just getting on the end of loose balls and, and creating moments like that. It's a great sequence from the U.S. It was made easy by Costa Rica's lack of defensive structure. But then you still want to pull that apart. You still need to pull that apart. This is what we want to see mm-hmm. from Greg Baralter's U.S. men's national team. This is what he's advertised. And, and it's good to see it actually pay off in a, a game against one of your rivals in CONCACAF. And and so I think to go up 1-0 against a rival in CONCACAF and have it be Brendan Aronson who insteps that one that ball in aggressively, I did have a moment where I was like, ooh, could DK have done better? And he had a few moments. There's the one that he kind of leaves it and maybe shouldn't have and Anthony Robinson didn't expect him to. There's a couple other instances in the first half in which it's like, oh, that was good, but I just wanted him to score a goal. I really wish... 
that that had happened, and then it did. Uh, again, <laughs> another great ball from Mark McKenzie. Some pretty poor marking from Costa Rica. And I will note, this is my sort of maybe overly negative point to make, is that DK adjusts his run to be in line with the defender who's right next to him, and I think it was Calvo. Uh, and if it had just been Calvo, he would have been offside. So he doesn't adjust enough, but because Gonzalez has kept him on by about five yards, uh, he is onside to receive that pass. And that's the other key thing that I hadn't really noticed in the uh, live action, is that when that ball is played in, it, it felt slow to me. It felt kind of awkward as he approaches the goal. And and live, I thought like, oh, he wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do. And he kind of slowed up and waited and waited and then finished. And like, it's a good goal, but could it have been better? Again, nitpicking here. Watching it uh, at halftime and realizing not only was I completely wrong, but like it's even more impressive because his first touch on that play is the shot that he doesn't try to take a touch. He doesn't try to receive the ball, turn and then go forward, which is what I think some other players would have done in other U.S. games of late. Instead, he lets it go across him, but then gets his positioning so that no defender is really going to be able to make a play on the ball, but that he can now look up, know, knows where the ball is going to go, knows the rate uh, that it's traveling, and can watch the goalkeeper. And as soon as uh, – uh, forgive me, I forget. Morera. Yeah, Morera. Uh, as soon as Daryl DK, I think, like basically looks at him long enough, he – baits him into diving towards that far post and then insteps it to the near post. It's the type of finish we saw from him from Barnsley this season. It's just a good, here's your opportunity. You're one-on-one. Don't mess it up. And he didn't. And for a U.S. striker to not mess up that 1v1 opportunity is not always a certainty and and did make me very, very happy both for Daryl DK and for the U.S. uh, number nine options. I like the idea that if Daryl DK stares at the opposing goalkeeper long enough, he, he can dives. just sort of move them with his mind. <laughs> like, like it's like he starts controlling them in FIFA, and the controller's yeah. just exactly. in his mind, and he flicks the stick to the right yep. in this case for Morera, and then just finishes near near-ish post. I, I I think that should happen more often. I think DK should tap into that superpower more. I will say as well, <laughs> this is DK's bread and butter from a shooting standpoint. Mm-hmm. When I went and watched all of his shots for Barnsley in the championship for that article I wrote for The Athletic, most of DK's shots come on the right side of the box with his right foot. And that's exactly what we saw in this game. He is supremely comfortable shooting from that area, and that's the spot where he most often overperforms his expected goals, as in he he regularly converts chances that a lot of players don't in that spot. And so it's nice to see him getting into that zone. And then, yeah, it's a nice run as well in the the buildup. Uh, it's actually Taylor. If if my notes are correct and my memory is correct, it's Tim Weah over on Francisco Calvo, and Tim Weah makes a dropping run very similar to the one that mm. DK makes, dropping Calvo in midfield, forcing him to follow Weah into midfield, and then DK makes his own run on Giancarlo Gonzalez and leaves Gonzalez in the dust, and that Salazar way off in the there background, five you. yards behind the line. But it, it's a nice coordinated piece of attacking movement. Good spatial recognition from Weah. Good spatial recognition from DK to drop and then step forward quickly, get on the ball. A great ball from McKenzie, who ha- who has. Some serviceable qualities in terms of his his skill on the ball. He's not John Brooks. He's not probably not Chris Richards, but he can pass the ball. And I think we saw that in this moment. It is it's a lovely piece of of team attacking play. Did you have anything else you wanted to say about Daryl DK? Because I'm wondering what your thoughts were on his overall performance. Obviously, he gets the goal, looks lively throughout. I, I have in my notes a few different moments in which I thought his hold-up play was good, or at the very least his fight yeah. uh, to hold the ball up was good. I'm wondering, Joe, where you were on Daryl DK overall. 
Yeah, Taylor, you mentioned some of the some of the weak points in the box, right? Not not going yeah. after that lovely cutback from Aronson, and then he, he doesn't attack the ball quite enough in those spaces yet. But I thought I thought DK's hold up play was good, like you're saying, Taylor. Baralder said in a post match press conference that the team specifically was trying to play long in moments from goal and from build up mm-hmm. to use DK's strength, and that that's a great data point for us as we watch these games because that seems to me to be one of his biggest areas of value as the United States approaches World Cup qualifying. Having a DK, having a PFOC who can play a little bit more direct and allow his team to play a little bit more direct. I think that's very important. And and we saw that from DK a number of different times. Shoot, I, I'm trying to find it in my notes. But one of the goals comes after DK does his hold-up play thing. Yeah, it is. It's DK's own goal in the 42nd minute. This all happens. That whole sequence happens just a minute or so, just a moment after DK brings down a long ball from McKenzie in build-up. He gets on the ball and then draws a foul from Giancarlo Gonzalez. And then a few passes later, he's getting the ball in behind the back line. So, yeah, I thought he was, I thought he was pretty good in this game, doing a lot of different things in possession that allowed the U.S. to advance the ball. Let's talk about a few other big performances for the U.S. I would say the gentleman on either side of Daryl D.K., pretty impressive <laughs> yep. on the evening. Brendan Aronson uh, getting the goal, you could say, right, t- right place, right time, but also credit to him for being in the right place, right time. But then, uh, Joe, you already mentioned earlier, his his dribbling, not even 1v1, sometimes like 1v3, and his willingness to take people on. I think Timothy Weah had the same approach, and and. To your point about like the directness of the U.S. attacks, I love that we had some slow buildup, some like rapid passing buildup, and some just sort of long ball directness, and then also one v one take ons and trying to get around defenders. And it was just so multifaceted the way the U.S. wanted to attack and the way they did attack at times. I, I thought you couldn't have pulled that off as well if you didn't have those two really trying, just trying stuff. And it and it again felt like a performance that they knew. Look, it's like, you know, we're competing against Christian Pulisic and Gio Reyna. Odds are they're going to start over us. But maybe if we have some, like, consistently excellent performances, we'll see. And so I, I, maybe in a different game, I'm more frustrated by Wea because I do think that, like, there were times when he could have looked for a simpler pass, but he wanted to make something happen. And this is the type of game where you want to make something happen and you should try. And I thought this was a game where I was okay with him maybe being a little bit selfish at times because that's what you want your attackers to be, especially when they sent blood in the water. And I think both the wide attackers and Daryl DK did a good job of that on the evening. Ah, that's so well said, man. I was trying to figure out how to express that idea because Tim Weah, especially, I think more than Aronson, over dribbled in moments and didn't. Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't think he always made the best decision on the ball. But you have to put up with some of that stuff, right? If you want Tim Weah to then drive at somebody, beat him, or or to pull the ball back and and flick it down the line for Reggie Cannon without even looking, you have to accept some of that sloppiness on the ball and ideally you want to reduce that as much as possible but I'd rather have two wide attacking players in Brendan Aronson and Timothy Weah who are willing to go out there and, and try stuff than players who are, are bland and vanilla we saw too much of that back in Olympic qualifying with the U23s we don't need to see more of that we need to see more of players like Weah and Aronson going out there and actually doing things and making things happen I, I think these two players are the most direct Wingers, maybe toss Jordan Morris into this as well if he's healthy. They're the, they're the most direct wingers in the pool. Pulisic will drop and then dribble sideways. or I mean, he'll try to beat you vertically, but not necessarily off the ball. Gio is not a big off-ball, straight-line kind of mover. 
But Tim Weah and Brendan Aronson are, and I, I think Greg Berhalter loves that about them because he'll talk mm-hmm. about needing runs in behind. These players can provide that, and we saw them stretch Costa Rica at times in a really dangerous way. And I, I think their profiles work in this 4-3-3 system so well. I agree, and I think also their on-the-ball creativity is is equally important because I'm going to assume for Berhalter in an ideal scenario, if this were a club team where he was with them every single day in and out, I, I think his his goal would be to have it be that like when a player receives the ball, they know they've got these three options. Those three options have moved to the spaces they need to be to receive the ball, and it's that very rotations and patterns of play and like you know where your teammates need to be you know where that ball is going to go the teammate knows where the ball is going to go how to receive it and where they need to play it that's the ideal but you're not really going to be able to do that as effectively at international level and I think with the depth of the pool that the United States has and the numbers that Berhalter is working with and trying to get integrated and then some of those players not being on the same technical skill level as others it's a balancing act. And I think to have the individual creativity of Aronson and Weah was such an important thing for how the U.S. was able to evade pressure at times. Timothy Weah, I think even if it was a he received the ball out wide and then was still going to play it backwards to the fullback or play it laterally to a central midfielder, there would just be like a little step over or two step overs or a little pullback or something that just pulls in a Costa Rican defender or makes Costa Rica step out or step closer or even another player comes over to double team and then he plays that ball. But those little feints, those little step overs, those little quick like accelerations and then decelerations, they they create space, they pull in players, they open up opportunities. And having players that are willing to try that type of thing and in this case, pulled it off pretty regularly, uh, then allows that system to be more fluid, that possession to be much more potent because you're consistently having a couple more yards of space or a few more passing options, and it makes it that much harder to defend. Taylor, when was the last time that you felt this good about the U.S.'s wide attacking options? Not the number nines, but but the wingers. We see Weah, we see Aronson, then Reyna comes off the bench, draws a penalty, and scores it in the 77th minute. I mean, Christian Pulisic didn't even play here, and I don't want to put too much into this game, and I don't think either one of us wants to put too much into this game. But man, when was the last mm-hmm. time you felt this good about the winger pool? Uh, I don't think I ever have. I, I like, I mean, maybe like 2010 or something like that. I don't know, which was not even a good World Cup year, so that's a bad one to say. Uh, but the, I, th- I think just for this to not be not Pulisic and not Reyna, and for it to be two different young players who uh, then came in and looked very good. And like I think we've wanted to see Timothy Weah have this sort of creative attacking game. I wanted to see Brendan Aronson do it as well because I feel like we've seen him do it at Salzburg a lot this season. If I were... I mean, it's it's not saying much right now. Adams was my player of the game, but I would say if I'm buying stock, I'm buying it in Brendan Aronson. And I think we've kind of been... Stating that over and over again every time we watch him play for Salzburg this season. It's just you keep seeing new wrinkles to his game, new aspects of it. But that work rate is always there. The intensity is always there. And and I just think he's such a great backup option. He's a great starting option if Berhalter wants to move things around. I think Timothy Weah is certainly a lethal option off the bench and is going to give Berhalter more to think about when it comes to his attacking options that could potentially start. Yeah, there's a lot of depth there. I I wouldn't mind some more depth at the number nine, but uh, yeah. I'll sure. take the wide attack for now. Well, and it's crazy for me to think that likely one of Tim Weah, Brendan Aronson, or Jordan Morris is going to be left off of the World Cup Oof. roster should the U.S. make it there. Because I don't necessarily envision Baralta bringing 
five wingers. Yeah, yeah. he could. He, he could, and it wouldn't shock me. But I don't think that's the most likely outcome. I think it's probably an extra number nine if you're going to bring another attacker. But, I mean, man, good players are going to get left off of that 2022 yeah. roster. And that's where you want to be. That's what yep. France has happened to them, you know, in a, in a much greater extreme. But it's one small step towards that reality. And I, I think that's that's a really positive step. I, I like that step as well, Joe. Uh, I like that we're going to try to keep this show a little bit tighter uh, than normal <laughs> because it is a friendly that they won 4-0 after a giant win over our biggest rival. I, I think, like, it's okay to be excited, but we don't, as you already said, don't need to go too, too in-depth. I do want to ask you, who are some other players that you think had strong performances? We've talked a lot about DK, about Way, about Aronson, about Tyler Adams, but who else stood out to you on the evening? I guess quickly I want to say players that didn't stand out to me, Mm. uh, really any of the subs. I don't think any of the subs, because of where the game was at that point, with the U.S. mostly up 3 to nothing by the time these guys come in. Walker Zimmerman is the only player who comes off the bench before that, coming in from Mark McKenzie. I don't think Jackson Ewell or Kellen Acosta, really even Giorena or Sibichu got a few more touches dropping in for that Mm. at that 9 spot, or or PFOC, excuse me. But not a lot happened there. So really the player I wanted to highlight was Tim Ream. Because we can talk about his his defensive issues, getting isolated 1v1. We saw that very clearly against Mexico. We also saw that, I believe, against Switzerland. The games are running together a little bit for me at this hmm. point. But he he is not a player who excels in those 1v1 defensive situations. But in games where the U.S. is going to dominate the ball, he is a player that I don't mind seeing start at left center back to give John Brooks a rest— Type-wise, they're very similar in how they how they approach the game. Reem maybe not quite as aggressive with this passing, but smooth left foot, good on the ball. For a game where the U.S. is going to dominate possession, they still end up with 60-something, 65, I think, in this game. He's a, he's a fine option for me to start as the left-sided center back, and I, I think I enjoyed, I, I did enjoy largely what he brought on the ball from a passing standpoint in this game. I'm glad you said that and mentioned that because I was on the fence. I was kind of 50-50 because I liked some things. I didn't like other things. And the what, ones what that didn't I you didn't, like? What didn't you like, Taylor? Because I think you've kind of already answered it. Uh, is that I saw him in relation to like what I've already said about Tyler Adams, Reem would be a little bit slower and would take that extra touch and would sort of wait and look around and look around and then play the ball. And uh, when I, that was like, like I had it in my notes as like the questions on the rewatch is like, why was that happening? Why did the U.S. and it's almost to the extent that I saw on occasion Reggie Cannon making lots of different runs and not just attacking runs, but even like checking away, checking two and wanting the ball and it wouldn't go there. And so watching it again, what I saw from Tim Ream was, was a deliberateness in his decision making that he didn't just want to pass the ball to pass the ball. And there was an element of the kind of veteran decision making of like telling people like, no, no, not yet. Like check away, check away. And then playing the ball where he did want it to go, even if it was only a five yard pass and he would get it back. I think sometimes it was potentially slowness and taking an unnecessary touch or two, but other times it was a decisiveness of, I want the ball in more threatening positions than playing it out wide for fear of getting sort of contained then along that channel and having to go direct when we don't want to. So I think on the rewatch, I am uh, more positive. I I would definitely say I'm significantly more positive about what I saw from Tim Ream. The frustrating thing about this type of game is that then there is more than maybe with some of the attacking players, there's the caveat of like, but it's this Costa Rica team, it's 4-0. Right, right. What can we fully take away? And I would just say that, as you said, Joe, I think against a team that's going to give us more possession, maybe that is where we see the value of Tim Ream. And and one thing I want to add, one negative nitpicky kind of thing, is in the second half, Taylor, I'm sure you noticed this too, 
the pace fell off. And yeah. I, I mentioned that earlier. Part of that's natural. You've got multiple goals coming off of this crazy high against Mexico. You're going to win this game. That's fine, and that's normal. But I will say one thing that I, I would have liked to see from the U.S. more in the second half is the center backs driving the ball forward and engaging mm-hmm. Costa Rica's 4-4-2 yep. block. I, I think that could have been a way for them to break through because, Taylor, I don't, I don't know... I don't know how much, we don't need to spend much time talking about this, but Sebastian Legette changed his role. Eric Berhalter changed Sebastian Legette's role in the second half. It was Robinson then in the second half as a left back and playing in that hole in possession with Legette and Musa playing as just straight up central midfielders, two number eights in front of Adams and then in front, uh, and then it was Acosta coming in from one of those spots later when Yule came on. But the roles changed. And, and those two central midfielders had real problems finding space and, and getting on the ball between the lines behind Costa Rica's double pivot. And I think one way, if you want to break lines and get the ball and advance it through those central spaces, one way to do that is to drive the center backs forward, have them pull a central midfielder out or have them pull any real opposing player out, which then causes this domino effect. And there's going to be someone open at that point. I didn't see Tim Ream or Walker Zimmerman really do much driving of the ball. And I didn't see them create many numerical advantages or, or pull many players out. And I, I think if I'm nitpicking, that would have been one thing I would have liked to see in the second half a, as a way for the U.S. to actually create more chances once the tempo had died a little bit. And Tim Ream was a part of that nitpicky thing for me. Yeah, I can understand that. I think I'm more okay with it because I can also understand with Tim Ream not being the most fleet of foot and with Mark McKenzie having some of the m- mistakes he had against Mexico – I can see both of them not wanting to drive forward with the ball, get caught, and then the U.S. does concede a goal, and it's all your fault, and it's another sort of negative mark in your uh, in your sort of tracking sheet. So I, I, I'm with you, though, because in the times when we did see that, especially in the first half, it seemed to be Tim Ream who would just move it forward five or ten yards more, get past midfield, and try to pull out some Costa Rican players. I thought when he did that, Similar to what I was talking about with, say, Timothy Weah, just doing that little step over, just pulling somebody out five yards or making a player slide over a couple yards. It just keeps opening up space. And the more the U.S. does it, the more comfortable they are in those moments, the better they're going to be. I think the more Yunus Musa is on the field, the better they're going to be as well. Yeah. I mean, man, do you want to, do you want to go in more on Musa? Do you want to talk about another player? Where, where do you want to talk right about now, Musa? Taylor. Cause, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I don't know why we didn't see more of him in the Nations League, uh, and I think it's probably just the players that were there, the depth that was there. But I think he, if this were the game where Burhalter told him, like, hey, show me what you got, uh, he showed him some things. And the two moments yeah. that I wanted to spotlight in the 28th minute is where he does uh, the the Musa maneuver that we've come to love, where he kind of evades a defender who's trying to put that initial press on him, gets around him, but it's a tight control, pulls in another defender, gets a foul at midfield, but that was with his back to goal, could have conceded possession, could have just kind of played it backwards and then let the U.S. build from there so that he plays himself out of pressure and ends up drawing a foul. That is what we've come to expect from him. But then I wrote down the exact moment, 57-21 is when he plays a... It's a sort of weird looping ball that he, I think, hits with his laces, so it has this weird up-and-down trajectory. But it's a good 40-yard pass wide, like straight to the feet of Reggie Cannon, who has advanced down the right, right-hand side. And just like that he kind of turns and hits that ball, I think it's his second or third touch to do so, but it's inch-perfect. It's 
I think I often see him with the slaloming runs, the tight control or drawing fouls. And to see him be able to hit that cross field pass, it's just another club he has. It's another thing he can bring to the, to the table when it's needed. And yeah, once again, I love Yunus Musa. I, I have two more Musa moments because I totally please. agree. Well, Musa moments, that is a nice, that is a nice. There we go. Uh, one of the first plays of the game from the U.S. in possession, it's, it's 320 on the, on the game clock. It's Musa getting the ball in that right-sided central midfield kind of space where the U.S. are in the attacking half. And he gets on the ball. He has tons of time and space. So that's the big caveat here. But he plays this nice disguised pass. He, he shifts defenders with his eyes and with his hips. And that allows him to play the ball into the pocket on that right side. And I don't have my notes if it's Tim Weah or Reggie Cannon, but I'd imagine it's one of those two players. It's a good ball from Yunus Musa. It's a nice setup for that ball, more importantly. So that's passing moment for me from Musa. And then a dribbling moment, the Musa maneuver. 20 seconds into the second half. You know, the U.S. come out, they're up 2 to nothing. Maybe it's time for them to go ho-hum, we're going to pass the ball around. And they do that, but not until after Yunus Musa does a, the ball's coming into him and he does this little roulette and draws a foul all in one motion just about 20 seconds into the second half. I almost laughed out loud in that moment because it, it's so Yunus Musa. He's playing within himself and he's so good. His self is so good for him to be playing within. And he just can come out there and, and clown people and body them off the ball and move the ball forward on the dribble and a little bit with his passing. It's hard not to like Yunus Musa and what he brings to this group. No argument here, Joe Lowry. Uh, I would say nobody in my mind, at least as you said, of the like starting 11 had had a bad game. I would say like I thought Mark McKenzie's passing uh, was was better. We talked about that already. I thought Anthony Robinson was fine. That's a player that I might want to keep an eye on if I'm going to like rewatch chunks of this again <laughs> just to see what he did. Because I think we've we've so, sort of been waiting for that like, oh, this is the Anthony Robinson performance. I feel better about him as a potential starting left back, potential backup left back. And I, and I don't remember any sort of negative moments from him, but I also don't remember a ton of consistently positive ones. He has uh, that centering pass that leads to the Aronson goal. He's got some good runs. He does a good job defensively, but I thought he was solid, if not standout. I think Reggie Cannon, kind of the same thing, though he does get the goal and I think was really lively on that right-hand side. Uh, so I think a positive game for him. And same thing for Ethan Horvath as well. Just a, a good game, did what he needed to do, led, led by example and was calm on the ball. So there you go. Yeah, a lot of the U.S.'s defensive unit just didn't have a whole lot to mm-hmm. do in this game. The attack didn't flow through Reggie Cannon. Robinson has that nice entry ball in the first goal, but doesn't have a lot to do after that. I think part of that is, in the second half, the U.S. not rotating the ball quite quickly enough to find him in those wider spaces. But, I mean, yeah, the, the fullbacks didn't have a lot to do. The, the one mark I have against Mark McKenzie, really, is he has that yellow card in the 37th minute for fouling yeah, Joel true. Campbell. True. He slips and tries to recover. And, and you can just see in that moment a little bit, yeah, part of it is just him falling down, which is, of course, an accident. But he's not the most fleet of foot. He's not the quickest to cover those short distances. And he, he gets done a little bit in that moment and yeah. has to foul to avoid Joel Campbell going into the box. So, I mean, that's that's a mark against him for sure. But, yeah, a lot of those players just didn't have a whole lot to do defensively. And I think that's a lot of how we evaluate the back four. And then Ethan Horvath just didn't have much action and goal in terms of saving yeah. shots and stopping shots. He, he passed the ball, and I thought he did a, a pretty good job of that at least. Yeah. 
Joe, I'm really glad you brought up that moment with the McKenzie Yellow because that is one of the moments that was like making me not have second thoughts about Anthony Robinson, but the, basically that was one of the moments that I was remembering but couldn't remember as being negative. And it's because it's Robinson who gives the ball away there. Like I think basically just takes a heavy touch, loses the ball, and that's why Costa Rica are counterattacking. But it's also – as you might have guessed with me saying it's Anthony Robinson driving forward and losing the ball, the U.S. have numbers committed, and that's where you do get the scramble. It's why Reggie Cannon has to come sprinting across to try to win a header at full speed that he is never going to win, and that then necessitates that foul from Mark McKenzie. So not great from McKenzie, maybe not great from Reggie Cannon, though I don't think he could have done much better, but it is Robinson giving that ball away. And so there's just those little tiny moments that don't quite stand out, but also prevent me from saying a great game from Anthony Robinson. Robinson, though I will say a great game on the whole for the United States in that 4-0 win, a big result, and I will, I think my final point be uh, to echo what Keith Costigan tweeted at the end of it, just that this felt like a performance that was at least to some extent rooted in that win over Mexico, that having beaten Mexico, there's a swagger, there's a confidence to this team, and just that if they lose, they still have a point to prove, and even though it's a friendly Having lost to Mexico, maybe there's just a bit more pressure to like, well, we got to get a result here. We got to show we can do something. And I think beating Mexico took the pressure off a little bit, let the U.S. play with confidence, let them just try some stuff that wasn't like, oh, we've got to win this one. But like, ah, let's see what happens. And I think anytime you're trying stuff with confidence, it certainly doesn't hurt to be up one nail inside the first like 10 minutes. Uh, but I think all, all of those things combine to make the U.S. just look confident and I would say charismatic. There were some smiling moments and some friendly moments and Weston McKinney chewing uh, sunflower seeds on the sidelines, but also just comprehensive and talented. And those are all very good things to be saying about the U.S. right now. I can't wait for the fall. I can't wait for World Cup qualifying. We have the Gold Cup and that's going to be – we'll talk before that tournament about maybe how we're going to watch those games. And it's just going to be a different beast because we'll see different players and it has a different purpose than this four-game window had for the U.S. But I'm excited for that, of course, but I'm I'm really looking forward to World Cup qualifying. Having games that mattered or even just games that felt like they mattered because both teams were trying and put out their best 11s, again, Honduras and then Mexico – those Nations League games were so much fun and stressful and scary, but fun to watch. And I'm ready for more of that kind of soccer. We got some of it in this game, not quite as much, but still coming off of this 4 nothing win, then headed into the Gold Cup and then headed into World Cup qualifying. That's going to be so much fun. There we go, man. All right, Joe, anything else to add before we call this one a day? Not a thing, man. I know it's late for you, so I don't want to drag this on. <laughs> uh, not so bad compared to some of the other games we've been doing this week. <laughs> it is be still worse, amazing right. to me that though it's Wednesday night and we've already done, I think, six shows or something like that this week. A lot more still to come. Uh, we've got a special episode coming out tomorrow that is basically myself, Joe, Ryan, and Graham just sort of chatting, talking about our backgrounds, talking about how we got into soccer, talking about what we like talking about. It's sort of a get to know your co-host before the Euros begin. That will be out tomorrow. Uh, so too will allocation disorder on friday and then our first euro review it'll be me joe and graham i believe reviewing italy and turkey maybe doing some specific predictions for the games on saturday and sunday but a busy uh end of the week joe in what has already been a slightly busy week for us Oh, yeah. And you guys are not going to want to miss that host show because I flex all of my Simpsons knowledge. Um, I mean, that's basically half the show. It's just me reciting facts that I know about the Simpsons. So there's a whole number of reasons to check out that show, but that is chief among them. It is indeed. Uh, Joe Lowry, uh, thank you for taking the time to uh, happily talk about the 4-0 win for the U.S. men's national team. 
You got it, Taylor. Listeners, thank you all for listening as always. And as I've already said, we'll talk to you all again very soon. (laughs) 